0: Well, hello everyone. This is Jessica, and this is Caitlin, and this is the Calling All Spirits podcast. How are you this evening, Caitlin? <laughs> I am here. That counts, right? <laughs> it does. We are very glad you are here. It would be very boring if it was just
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> you underestimate how entertaining you are. Oh no way. <laughs> It's just been an awkward week. Has not been a bad week. It's just been an awkward one. My mother-in-law came to live with us for a little while. And while I love her and I get along with her great, it's just awkward sharing space with people because I haven't done that since I left Houston. Like we had a whole house full of roommates and I was used to it. But then we moved here two years ago and I am not used to having people around me besides my husband anymore. So it's just growing pains, I think is the best way of putting it. It's not bad. It's just growing pains.
0: Well, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, no, I, I totally understand. Especially when you get used to something. That That's tough.
1: Exactly. But I'm sure it'll be fine. The idea is to get her her own place in the next few months. So it's just going to be awkward for a few months. It's not permanent. We hope. Um, <laughs> but nah, it's just it's just been a weird, a weird, weird week. How are you?
0: I'm good! I am good. We are just, it's been a good week, and we are just packing up because I am going on a road trip with my parents and my son. We're going to a family wedding in Louisiana, but on the way, I have convinced my family to stay at what is considered one of the most haunted places in America, and actually spend the night there, so I am excited.
1: I did not realize your husband wasn't going. Suddenly this trip makes more sense because I was wondering how you convinced him to do this as well. But never mind, he's not going.
0: And it has been on my bucket list literally, I think, since junior high. I feel like it was on one of those Unsolved Mystery episodes or something. And I was like, I have to go to this house. So, and he has found reasons not to go. (laughs) But I mean, we're passing by it on the way to the wedding. It's only like two hours.
1: Out of the way, kind (laughs) of. I mean, you're driving, what, eight and a half, nine hours to the wedding? Two hours is very small compared to... This is going to make no sense to anybody outside of Texas or the West Coast. I know. (laughs) Nobody east of us drives eight hours for fun.
0: (laughs) No, I mean... Like, in Texas, I feel like if you're, like, it's three hours away, it's like, oh, that's nothing. And if it's, like, six hours, it's like, that's doable. We can drive six hours. No we can do a we'll day trip um, for
1: two hours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is, like, a day trip. Two hours is nothing. I was just watching a show about this. And some it was a reality show. Anyway, they were going to have to go somewhere that was two hours away. And they were, like, losing their minds. I'm like, that's nothing. Like I'll drive two down. hours
1: to go spend the day baking with my sister and a friend. Like, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> You don't have that choice here.
0: No, you don't. So yeah, it was like, oh well, you know, do a little excursion. But no, my hu- it will not be with my husband. He's gonna stay home. He has to work and take care of the little fur babies. But we are going to make this happen, and we are spending the night. I am Ooh. so pumped. I don't know how my parents are. They're they're act they're pretending at least to be super excited for me. But that's very supportive of them. Are you bringing the spirit box or anything? I am. Well, I don't have. Uh, I have a spirit box on my computer I'm going to bring, and I've got just my little EVP recorder. So I'm going to bring those. My son wants to bring his little PKE meter and his Ooh. proton pack. So we'll probably let him bring those. What you get for letting
1: your kid watch the Ghostbusters over and over and over and over again. I
0: know. It's his favorite
1: movie. So. Nothing to do with you and your favorite movie. No.
0: Why would you even say that? And this. Ties into our podcast this evening because we do have a Ghostbusters connection. So hey, look can- at
1: that—a segue! <laughs>
0: it is a segue, which we probably should get started because, <laughs> for people, this is to understand. This is one of our favorite topics. This is what we bonded over when we first met. We're not—we're going to be talking about seances, which is super exciting, but we're also going to just be talking about Victorian. Subculture around death and mm-hmm. how they mourn the dead, and how this did lead into seances. So, I am so excited to just get started.
1: Yeah, like today's topic is seance, but I'm sure y'all are used to the fact that we won't put on a show before building the stage. So, we're going to give you the backdrop of the history that the seances got so popular in, and why. I mean, obviously, we all have that image in our heads of the Victorian seance with a candlelight. Part of that is because of history, and part of that is because Hollywood. But Hollywood pulled it from history, and there's a reason for it. Are you ready? I am. Let's get into it.
0: Okay, well, to set our scene, we are going to explore the Victorian way of death. So, for Victorians, grief was more than an emotion. It really was a way of life for them. And, of course, death has been a part of life since time began, but during the Victorian period, it's really acknowledged that this is one of the golden ages of grief. Death penetrated the Victorian home at all levels and across class distinctions, and this is really because during the Victorian period, the loss of a loved one, especially children, was sadly a very frequent and a very common occurrence Just everyday causes, including consumption, influenza, pneumonia, even insignificant things such as a minor cut could become infected, and it could lead to a passing. So Victorians just decided and responded by embracing death with resignation and ritual. Mourning really became a subculture, impacting how they dressed, how they behaved in society, and
1: even how they decorated their homes. Absolutely. It, it touched everything and every aspect of your life. Like from the second you got word that a loved one had passed or if you were an immediate family member who was there when they passed, you instantly had a list of things to do and places to not be. Technically speaking, you had to immediately put out the funeral announcements and order the funeral cookies and make sure you had your appropriate wardrobe because you couldn't simply just wear black to the funeral like we do today. You were in black for a time period, especially if you were a close family member and heaven forbid you were the wife and it was your husband who passed. If you were the woman in the situation... You were in mourning for years. I actually read a source earlier today that said it could be up to four years, depending sometimes. I'm used to the two-year pattern that we're used to hearing where you have the first year of full mourning where you don't really wear any jewelry. You wear all black and it's not a shiny black. It's a very dull black. And you don't go to most social occasions. If you do, it's because it's like a wedding or another funeral and it's stuff that you can't really get out of, so to speak. And then you go into half-morning where you can wear a little pop of color in the form of lavender or gray. And you can go to some musical situations. uh, What's the word? Concerts. There we go. Some musical concerts. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I forget the word for concert? (laughs) But it had to be really somber and very respectable occasions. It was very, very restrictive in your movement. Because the idea was that you were to be secluded from society for the most part. Like if you were a kid and, or not a kid, if you were the person, you were the child and your parent passed, then it was like six months. And if you were a servant, you just had, you know, a black armband to represent that the household was in mourning because somebody in the house had died. Of course, if you were the man of the situation, you were expected to be out in society providing for your family. So you weren't nearly as restricted, although you were wearing a lot of black. And then naturally, as you go throughout the different levels of society, the less money you had, the less restricted you were in life because there was an accepted concept that if you did laundry to help bring in money for your family, you were not going to be secluded from society for two years. That was just not feasible. So it was very much class-based. And I know that it started like at the beginning of the Victorian period because so much in each era that we, just because we put labels on it and time period distinctions, the movements changed throughout the whole thing. Like, the world was very different from the beginning of Victoria's reign to the end. I seriously associate this entire process with her and her mourning Albert because yes, he passed and the world stopped for her. Like she was in mourning her entire life after he passed. Like she lived another 20 yeah. plus years and she never stopped wearing black. He, the, he left a glass of water next to the bed when he died and she had it there for the rest of her life. Like they changed it out every day the the servants would wash it or at least rinse it and put it back with a full glass of water. But oh, my God, the world stopped for her. And of course, because the idea of keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Kardashians is not new. You have somebody rich, powerful and or famous doing it. Naturally, we're all going to do it. So I do credit her for why it became as popular as it did
0: how she would grieve for him i mean they went about life as if albert was still alive in a sense she loved him so much and for those we're we're talking about the victorian period so for those that may not know some are very specific on the dates of queen victoria's reign but generally it's the 1820s to the early 1900s this is that time period that we're speaking about and this mourning that queen victoria makes so fashionable occurs after prince albert dies on december 14th of 1861 so that's when she goes into full mourning and then
1: everybody else goes into (laughs) full mourning as well if you will (laughs) oh yeah the country is in mourning and then stays the more. Think about what happened when Elvis died is the best example I can think of for at least my family's generations. Like the world, the world stopped for a hot minute, but then the world yeah. kept going again. Now imagine that, but the world n- not continuing on in a certain way. Like the world obviously continued because from the 60s to the 1900s, like it, the world completely developed, but definitely mm-hmm. happened because these were not only world leaders, they were also celebrities in a way they well they were they they i mean like i kind of like you mentioned today now it's
0: like even though i don't watch them no offense to those who do it's just not my cup of tea but like the kardashians but what they do or what we see the celebrities doing people emulate they want to buy the same things they want to wear the same clothes that's what it was like for queen victoria and the royals same idea whatever they did everybody else wanted to follow
1: that's why we have the white wedding dress (laughs)
0: Yes, that's what's fascinating. Not only most of the wedding traditions that we think of today, the white wedding dress, royal icing, all these things come from Queen Victoria. She set the fashion for weddings, and then she did it again for death. (laughs) She bookended things quite nicely there, didn't she? She really did, if we (laughs) think about it. (laughs) Except for the funeral traditions didn't quite stick like the wedding ones did.
1: Well, you, Yeah. I was going to say to be I was I was going to say to be fair, but yeah, a lot of the because World War One is what interrupted a lot of the funeral traditions Mm -hmm. and weddings can wait. Funerals can't. So I can see why weddings would still be able to hold on to their traditions because they're like, let's just wait a few years and then we can get back to it. Whereas the funerals like as soon as something falls out of favor, or falls out of fashion, it's kind of just gone.
0: Exactly, and as we're talking about how it affected how they dressed, which of course in black and and the length of time depending on who died in your family, but also when when we look at how they decorated their homes, everything was draped in black. Clocks were stopped. Oh, sorry, uh,
1: <laughs> mirrors were covered. Pictures were covered. Um, exactly. Yeah, everything was very dark, dreary, and. In mourning, like, if you can consider the, if you could take the emotion of grief and encapsulate it in an aesthetic, it would be the Victorian way of mourning.
0: It really, it really would be. The invitations you sent out to announce that someone had died were white with a black border. And depending on who died, depended on how big the border was on the invitation. There were so many details to, that they had to worry about
1: take care of when someone passed and it it is a little bit of a comfort to have the set of things you're supposed to be doing like that ritual does bring guidance and grief in a way I, I realized this last year just how much it helps to uh, have something to do when someone passes because I lost my cousin in a car accident last year mm-hmm. and because I'm the only one who knew that Zoom memorials were a thing because we were still in the middle of COVID and our families scattered all over the country from like Alaska to North Carolina to California like we are everywhere everywhere Getting everyone together wasn't really going to be feasible. But as soon as I mentioned Zoom memorials to my uncle, he was like, "Um, I have no idea how to do that. Can can you do it? And it helped me process my grief having something to work on. Like I had to arrange for everything and it went really well. And having that that thing to focus on helped so much and then of course i got to take something off my family's plate like they didn't have to worry about gathering everybody and scheduling everything they could focus on their grief which sounds terrible but is definitely needed when you're grieving
0: oh i mean absolutely we we think of these things i mean on the surface it's like you had to wear black for two years you had to send out invitations like it seems like so much but i think To me, I also see the benefit in this, especially because I think in our day and age, people are expected when someone passes, you need to get over it quickly. I think it's like you kind of move on and get over it. And I almost think sometimes we don't have, we're not allowed to grieve for as long as we want. We have to kind of put on a brave face and step back into society and get back to normal. And which is so hard or, and, and this is people trying to help. I mean, they're trying to be kind But then you also have people coming up and how are you doing? And how is this? And how is this? And I feel like, and sometimes it's like, that's too much. You don't want to talk about it. You don't, and have to relive it. And so I see the benefit, especially when people had to go into mourning, they had to stay in their homes. Now, granted, I wouldn't. I don't, I think two years is excessive, but (laughs) I mean, that's a lot, but I think it also gave you time to process and grieve. And even when you did step out in public and you were dressed all in black, that was a clear signal to other people. Okay. Let's give that person some space. Let's maybe be extra gentle, extra kind. They're going through something really difficult. So I think some of that would be a little more welcome today.
1: Well, we've lost that. We, in a general sense, at least in the US we have. I actually had a coworker that she was telling me about another coworker that she had worked with before. And when she'd started her position, her coworker just wore all black for the most mm-hmm. part. And it didn't occur to, you know, my friend to uh, figure why. Like some people just wear a lot of black. I wear a lot of black. Right. I'm not usually yeah. in mourning. Right. You've seen you've seen my wardrobe. That's but how I wear is black. Exactly but like 3 months after she started working in that office her coworker was like spontaneously oh i can wear colors now and wow they were like what what are you what are you talking about apparently her husband's first wife's mother so her husband's original mother-in-law had passed mm-hmm. and so she'd been in mourning for a year having to wear black in 2000 i think this was 2017 2018 I don't I didn't so I, I fixated it on the wrong thing I wanted the details on what mourning meant to them I did right. not get the country of origin I know she was from somewhere in South America but I don't know which country so I apologize to our listeners for my inability to be an effective detective um, <laughs> but yeah no there are still cultures today that very much have strict mourning procedures and I do think mm-hmm. that we are missing that in a lot of ways in the U.S. Now, granted, I'm sure these cultures have influences in the U.S. and the people who are part of those cultures have this healing process. And I'm a little bit envious of that. No, I think you're absolutely right. Having that space and having those social indicators and those cues of... You know, this is why you don't go bugging somebody like, oh, my God, why are you crying? Okay, well, she's all in black and she's wearing a veil. Let's make some assumptions and leave her alone. Yeah, cool. Exactly. I agree 100
0: percent. And as we're talking about, I mean, if anybody's following the timeline, so Prince Albert passes 1861. So these mourning traditions are already starting to take hold. We also have the beginning of the Civil War. In the United States and from 1861 to 1865 you have 620,000 men not that there weren't some women that were casualties too but mainly predominantly men that lose their life which at that time was two percent of the population so just this incredible amount of loss people losing husbands brothers sons cousins it's it's just no wonder that people just it it just spread and people are just like okay we have to embrace this somehow to
1: deal with this yeah the culture of mourning and the dealing of death go hand in hand and in this case everybody had to contend with it you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who hadn't been affected by loss during this time period it was not feasible and I mean, that's also, this is also where we get embalming as a tradition in the U.S., but that's a different podcast episode. (laughs) But yeah, the timing was just ridiculous for it to take off on both sides of the pond. Like, you have Victoria on one side in perpetual grieving, and then the U.S. gets, you know, with that one-two punch and loses 2%, like you said, of the population. So it was well-timed to take off on both sides.
0: So in their grief, so
1: they're finding ways to deal with
0: death and to grieve and to mourn. And it's not surprising that when they're suffering so much for these people that they've loved that have passed, you have also emerging and growing during this time is spiritualism. And it's now we have an opportunity to reconnect with our loved ones. I mean, it's no surprise that they just embrace the movement. With open arms, during this time period, you see the growth of it. Where at the end of the 19th century, you had between four to eleven million people identifying as spiritualist in the United States alone.
1: Yeah, that's a that's an even bigger percentage of the population. That is, how big was the population of the U.S. at that time? I don't know. Yeah, let me look that. Up it's worth the yeah. Cue the weird wait time uh, hold music.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it just makes sense. And I think there's such a misconception while you're looking it up. I think people on the surface, they look at the Victorians and like, oh, they were creepy. Ooh, they they dressed in black. They had veils. They had all this stuff. And it's like, well, if you had lost all these people in your life, what would you do? You would probably be doing the exact same thing they were.
1: I mean, I think people just get twitchy because they know about the uh, death photographs.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that, the death photography was a thing, but also people didn't have their picture taken on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. And if I lost my husband and had a chance to have one more picture of or have a photograph of him, I would have probably embraced it and said, let's do it. Absolutely. You just have to kind of put yourself in the time period and not the modern mindset.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a very different world, and in the year 1800, so at the very beginning of this, the population of the mm-hmm. U.S. was 5.3 million. So, wow. granted, as this moves on, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find the next. In the 20th century, uh, it went to 200 million by the 1960s. Why isn't this website giving me a 1900s? Anyway, it's a huge chunk of the population, and and. Like we said, anybody that wasn't affected by this, like there's no way to not be touched by a death of somebody you loved during the period of the Civil War. So why wouldn't you want one last chance to say hi?
0: With a better understanding and a better contact context, excuse me, of what's happening in the US, we're gonna move into a little bit of spiritualism, which takes us into the seance. So of course, as we know from previous episodes, um, if you haven't listened, turn this off, go back now, <laughs> and then come back. But the central <laughs> principles of the spiritualist movement was this belief in the, continu- uh, the continuation of life after death. Of course, it began in upstate New York in 1848 and reached the shores of Britain in 1852. So culturally prevalent with spiritualism that it attracted leaders and scientists of the day and even skeptics felt compelled to at least explore its ideas and in the span of four decades of of this time period it said that a new book about spiritualism was published once a week
1: which is huge wow. <laughs> because of all it took to publish a book exactly you're still hand lettering the printing press and rolling the ink on like yes. I, I don't i don't understand how not how, they, obviously how they came up with the content makes perfect sense, but how they were able to get the printing companies to do this. Like, they were independent little businesses that just rolled these out, literally, one after another. And I mean, you all heard the titles in the last episode. You start with a title that long, and then it just keeps going. It does. I actually pulled two titles, but I will tell you they're very, they're
0: short. These are very short. Okay. And very to the point. So I appreciate these authors. So two of the works I found in the hundreds produced one was "Evenings at Home" and spiritual seance, and the other was "Shadowland" or "Light from the Other Side." So that was just two of the titles, and that there were also more. You're right. Yeah, to the point, you know what we're talking about. I appreciate it. There were also more than a hundred American spiritualist periodicals in regular circulation at this time. Inside the periodicals were advertisements for public lectures. And for private seances, being held in nearly 800 cities and towns across the country. And just a little side note, we always talk about the North and upstate New York especially, which, I mean, it's still like, it's kind of like where it all starts, where it's really prevalent. What surprised me, and the more research I do, the more I find more evidence, this was even going on in Texas. I don't know why I just felt like it wouldn't travel down to Texas as much, because now... (laughs) It's not as accepted as it is in other parts of the United States. But, oh, no, it was happening all over the state. They were having seances and
1: spiritualist churches and all kinds of stuff. So this was across the country. So what I'm saying is that Texas picks and chooses what it wants to focus on. It's his history. And it uh, doesn't (laughs) want to talk about the parts that make it seem to California, nor east coast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Even in my little hometown, I found articles in a newspaper of so and so's having a seance tonight. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fun. Yeah, it's really cool. Future research project one day, but it's just to show this is widespread. I'm so excited. So let's enter the Victorian parlor, if you will, and explore what was regarded as the most exciting method of spirit communication the seance. Now, as the little teacher and me, we start with definitions. I like a definition. Merriam-Webster describes us or defines a seance as a session or sitting, a spiritualist meeting to receive spirit communication. Seance is French and means to sit or assemble. And the first known use of the word was actually in
1: 1802. That is so that? cool. Because, like, the literal definition of the word hasn't left like our vernacular because like we don't say seance very much anymore unless we're trying to make a dramatic point in a situation but like when you're consulting with a psychic or a medium a lot of the times or like when you're giving readings at least in the circles i run with it's still referred to as a sitting like you'll be the one who's available for sittings at the, the occult store or at the psychic fair and that's just so cool that while the word has shifted the word hasn't changed at all
0: no, I, I thought it was really interesting too. Yeah, exactly. We call them sittings or I know like in the circles I practice with, which for those that don't know when, well, even experienced mediums have circles and um, we'll dive into this a little bit more, but it's kind of like our practices. Like when we, when we gather together to practice, if you will, but it's working with your sitter or if that, or that could be your client as well. Your client is your sitter. So I just think it's so cool that we still use the same terminology. We may not say seance that often, but sittings and sitter, it's very (laughs) common. And the sitter is just the seance guest. That's what they called them. They were um, usually numbered between anywhere from four to 12 people who sit in an alternating male, female configuration and typically in a circle. <laughs> That's why we still have mediumship
1: circles today, even though you're rarely sitting
0: in a circle. <gasps> exactly, and especially with with COVID, we were sitting in Zoom rooms. <laughs> we were over Zoom. <laughs> that is something to point out today during practice. Sometimes we'll sit the chairs in a circle, but it's just like you're having a meeting, like <laughs> just like a normal meeting. So it's uh, a gathering. It's fine. It is, <laughs> but it's still Sometimes called circle. It's still called Circle, which is really cool. And that's where it came from. So, in the beginning, we first began to see the table and group sessions in the late 1850s. Of course, many attribute it to the Fox Sisters, who developed a simple form of communication with clicks, tapping, and knocks coming from an unseen source. But of course, I mean, as the Fox Sisters gained popularity seances took off across the country and they really became the new highlight of the social scene and were especially popular among the upper and upper classes and middle classes.
1: Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense. They have more free time and that dollar for entrance fee is a little bit less, you know, my kids won't eat for them than it is for the poorer classes. Exactly.
0: Exactly. They had the funds and time to enjoy these. Very good to point out. So we're going to look into the setting and kind of the elements of the seance, but I want to take a moment because a lot of this information comes from a brilliant source. It's a book, and I have to give credit where credit is due because I found so, so, it was such a wealth of information that I'm going to share with you. So the book is called A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters. And it is by Peter Aykroyd, and co authors were Angela Narth and Dan Aykroyd
1: <laughs> of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> we told you all the Ghostbusters was going to make another appearance. It does. And
0: I'm because I don't know if people know that. And I'm trust me, I could do a whole podcast. I'm not, but Dan Aykroyd's family and his grandparents in fact they were spiritualists and I that's kind of what inspired him for Ghostbusters, which I just think is the coolest thing ever. So Peter Aykroyd is his dad. And so he's talking about his family's history with spiritualism. And it is is it's probably one of the best books I found on this subject. So I want to give credit where credit is due. This is not sponsored. But just, I highly recommend it if you're interested in this history. Go get it. It's on Amazon. It's amazing. So, just wanted to put that in. So, let's set the scene of the seance. They were often held in the comfort of one's home parlor. And they took place around a large table in a dark or dimly candlelit room.
1: And, of course, were led by a medium. And I know that we have the image of it being, like, intentionally dramatic with candlelight. But think about the Victorian period for a second, y'all. What other source of light is there after dark? <laughs> like, you may have gas lighting if you live in the city. But, like, candlelight is all you have. And during, doing it during daylight, especially if you're in an agrarian community, for the most part... In the winter, where you're bored and you have nothing to do all night, is when you're going to go to the seances. You, you, you need lighting, and unless you're going to spend a ton of money on candles, you, you have the dimly lit room. It was it was functional.
0: <laughs> this is true, and I can't, until you brought this up, I never put the two and two together. I'm like, oh, they lit candles, and it was dark, and you're like, well, what other light source do they have? And I was like, oh, <laughs> Very true. Now, once they get electricity, then it is more just it's for, for effect.
1: Yeah, that's the ambiance. Yes, but in the beginning, that's just what they had. Yeah, it was It was an ambiance created out of necessity.
0: It really was. It really was. And
1: um, though we
0: will say, sometimes they did it and made it all dark. Some for the true purposes... I'm gonna have to say it, Caitlin. sometimes you could see the apparitions better. sometimes you could see the ectoplasm. I know I'm sorry, but it's true in the dark. And then for those that weren't as honest and were fraudulent mediums, it's a lot it's really easy to pull stuff off and trick people if the room is pitch black.
1: Yeah, when you can't see what's going on, it's a lot easier to to put one over on people
0: there there were, yeah. There are many reasons to have it dark. That's just the lighting source they had. Now, of course, you do have the medium there. That's the one who's going to facilitate communication between this world and the next. Oftentimes, the mediums were women, but not necessarily. I think this is really kind of fascinating. The mediums were often inspected prior to the seance. And there were even times that their hands were held Throughout the entire session, or they were even bound, or t- their hands were tied together as well, just to prevent any trickery. But when we think of everybody clasping hands and holding hands during the seance, that was also to prevent anyone from trying to do anything that was a little shady. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I heard, or I've heard, like I was listening in on conversations, I read accounts of seances where they were also touching feet, like where they would like put Mm -hmm. your right foot inside the left foot of your neighbor. And so like you couldn't move your feet and you couldn't move your hands without somebody noticing. So even if the medium had assistance for fraud, no one at the table could be helping because you were all accounted for. I also know there were some tricksy ways that the mediums managed to get hands free anyway. That'll be for the fraud episode.
0: Yes, and we should say that. We, obviously, I feel like I have to say this every time, but I, I whatever, I'm going to say it again. We believe there are real mediums. We are mediums. I mean, we'd be hypocrites (laughs) if we're like, they were all frauds. We don't think that at all. But what we're saying is there were people that took advantage.
1: Oh, yeah. There were people that. It's like lawyers. There are good, honest lawyers and there are shysters. (gasps) Oh, great. Hey, you you know what I rank your husband (laughs) as. I will ask him for advice all the time. I know. He talked me down out of a tailspin the other day when I was bugging out about (laughs) social media stuff. No, I know. But you can also say something about doctors or, shoot, historians. There are historians that are worth their salt and there are other historians that make conspiracy theories sound like real history. So, no, yeah, there there's the good, the bad, and the questionable in every sector of life, really. So, yeah, no, we will absolutely. absolutely admit that there are fraudulent mediums, and we will help point things out and give you tips and ideas for ways to not be, you know, gotten over on, because I mean, it doesn't help anybody if the frauds are out there ruining it for everyone.
0: No, and and we would just, we wouldn't we would be remiss if we didn't mention the good, the real mediums, what they did, and have to admit that there were some that that were frauds. So, what well, we I just wanted to put that out there, that there were some wonderful, wonderful, amazing mediums during this time. So, people held hands. They usually began the seance with a prayer or a hymn, and then the medium entered an altered state of consciousness or trance to deliver messages from those in spirit. And I should say here that the medium would begin the seance by entering an altered state of consciousness, or trance, to deliver messages from those in spirit. And the trance state is not unconsciousness. Instead, it's really an altered state of consciousness during which the medium has changed the pattern of the continuous brain waves. So there are four basic brainwave patterns but we're going to look at two of them, which is the alpha and the theta. So the alpha is a, what would we consider a light trance and occurs during mild hypnosis, meditation, or daydreaming, where the theta would be a deep trance state in which the medium is unaware of the surroundings, almost like they're in a light sleep. Both stages allow the medium to experience sensations that would normally be unavailable to the fully conscious mind, and so when a lot of how mediums work during this time period was in trance. People still do trance today; it is still taught today, but I don't feel like mediums work in trance as often. It's more specialized, where that was that was more common during this time.
1: Yeah, it was the standard. It's not,
0: It was the standard during this time. It is not the standard today. It's It's a very specialized area. Now, they also, what also is a little different when you, and please forgive me. We're probably gonna have a medium listening. It's like, that's not how I work. I'm just saying (laughs) in general, in general. So I'm gonna put that out there. Today, when you go to a medium, it is they are connecting with your loved ones in spirit. It is a direct connection. At this time, a lot of mediums worked with spirit guides. So this was an entity in the spirit world who almost acted as a gatekeeper or kind of the leader of the ceremony. So the spirit guide was responsible for contacting other spirits and arranging their access to the medium. So basically imagine the spirit guide being like okay you can come and talk you can't come and talk you can come like they're kind of arranging things behind the scene and they're the ones pulling people through where today in my classes we're not it's not connect with your spirit guide okay then let your spirit guide go and get some no we are blending directly with the loved one in spirit so that's a very different approach than what you saw a lot of a lot during this time period
1: Yeah, and if anyone wants to look into this, I will say, quick little trigger warning, Mm -hmm. it's a, not surprisingly, because it's the Victorian period, but it's a surprisingly racist topic. A lot of mediums had things like Native American spirit guides or had Indian from India spirit guides. They would pull any culture that was seen to have a more exotic, I hate to say, kind of connection to the other world and the ethereal, they would spontaneously, somehow, wonderfully have a spirit guide that came from a culture that was more directly tied to to the other side. And it's, oh God, it's terrible after you read it for a little while. So just be aware of that if you're going to be re- reading into it. And definitely read into it because it's a fascinating history. And then I also want to comment on if you are like me in the modern kind of ethereal world of new ageness, (laughs) also crawling with racism. Spirit guides are a term that is very different from this technology, not technology, this uh, terminology. So in modern times, spirit guides are often a higher version of yourself or kind of uh, an exterior teacher to you. Um, it's not so much a gatekeeper in the sense that we're going to give you access to the dead. It's more like we're going to gatekeep the kind of celestial knowledge with you. And as you're ready for it, we'll give it to you kind of situation or give you guidance as needed. It's kind of like a mentor babysitter combo on the other side. I was thinking of him like kind of a life coach too. In yeah. but <laughs> It's more
0: personal. It's like they're your spirit guides. They work with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's used differently. Precisely. So once the medium has entered the trance, physical phenomena, including strange lights, instruments that played by themselves, levitation of objects, disembodied voices, and actual manifestations of spirits began happening. So you could have a few of these in one session. You could have all of these in one session.
1: Depended on
0: how the spirits were feeling
1: that evening. (laughs) It's spontaneous, Uh, uh, spontaneous sounds and sights. Definitely disconcerting, I would imagine, the first few times it happens.
0: Absolutely. And this is more physical mediumship. Very different because today we do more mental mediumship. Like what you see on TV is more mental mediumship. Then it was more objects moving and lights and you're hearing instruments are playing. I always think of the Haunted Mansion, right? (laughs) That's all I can think about when I hear instruments playing by themselves. I picture, (laughs) is it Madame Leota and the crystal ball and like things floating in the air. And But that's more of what they had happen. And this did happen. And it's really interesting. My mentor who is in England and has been doing this for, gosh, well over 50, 60 years, who's seen anything and everything she's studied with the very best, this, she saw almost the tail end of this kind of the tell end of this physical mediumship. She talks about how it really faded away and that she doesn't know if it will ever come back. <laughs>
1: the apparitions it, faded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Technically they well, Sorry. we still see apparitions. We still do. It's it's just really interesting how this is what she started with and how she's just seen a big shift. So this did happen up into the thirties, the forties, the fifties. And not that it didn't happen after that, but you really just see it kind of start.
1: It's kinda of like the whole it's, it's like away. the home funeral. It it faded, but it was still in certain yes. areas up through the eighties. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Now, these sessions generally lasted one to one and a half hours, sometimes two hours. And the attitude of the sitters was considered to be just as important as the medium and what they were doing. A little quote that I thought is really good. It's from Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a spiritualist and the author of On Miracles and Modern Spiritualism. He talks about how the manifestations which take place at séances depend more upon the nature, disposition and state of mind of those present than on the physical development of any medium especially if there were people in the session that are scoffing or doubting or kind of making fun of it eh, you're probably not going to get anything that night the spirits are going to be like ah eh, forget this and move on so the sitters were just as important to this as the medium
1: was. In a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense because when you're especially trying to do any kind of energy based work or even in, you know, different circles, magical rituals, it, if you have somebody throwing off the energy flow, it does have an effect on the situation. But at the same time, if you're doubting, we can kick you out because we're lying anyway is so, like, it makes it so easy for fraud. Oh my God. I, cause I understand the importance of it, but it sounds hanky from the other side. It does. I mean, it, it's,
0: it's no wonder it was so easy to get away with this. And it, and it was, what's so sad is it made the one, the real mediums, well, I think even today, mm-hmm. those that are of us that are studying and working our, <sighs> tails off and trying to develop, you have people out there that are just faking it and making money. It's like it gives us all a bad name. I mean, I think I feel like they went through the same thing back then. The disposition of the sitters was important. Now, home circle seances were often set up as regular weekly or bi-weekly meetings and were usually by invitation only. So, Of course, you had mediums like the Fox sisters that are having different people come in for seances on a daily basis. But in the smaller, more private seances, you usually had the same group of people. It was a very close-knit circle of people that you could trust. And you're meeting with this group of eight to 12 people either every single week or every two weeks and you're sitting and having a seance. And it's almost the same way we set up mediumship sh- circles today. The ones I attend, you meet every single week, same day, same time. Sometimes you go to two a week. It's that same idea because, and the spiritually, spiritualists of the time believe this as well, that it creates a certain level of trust and a certain level of comfort, which was needed in order to, at that time, summon the spirits. The most successful seances took place where You had a body of regulars, people that are meeting on a
1: consistent basis over an extended period of time. That makes a lot of sense, honestly. I picture it kind of like the way uh, neural pathways are established in the brain. The more you go down that repeated kind of path the easier it is to find it no matter what you're doing. Like if you have the rep- repetitive memory of how to get there, you know how to get there either in your mind or in physical space. So training yourself on the spiritual plane to do the same thing, it human nature-wise, it makes perfect sense, honestly. It does. It's hard enough as
0: a medium or doing this work because there's you have to release, in a sense, and just trust and believe and you really need that comfort level to just be like, okay, I'm just going to put myself out there and I'm going to trust. And if you have people that are doubting or you don't know them, it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's I, I totally understand this. <laughs> well, gee, Caitlin, um,
1: why don't you practice more? Oh, because I don't trust. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We just need to get you in a good circle. We just need to get you in a good circle, and then you can trust more. Okay, that's optimistic of you, but I will give it a shot. <laughs> well, I can be in your circle, and we just need a handful of more people, and we're good. There
1: we go. Good plan. Because I
0: do yeah. trust you. That is true. And my people are chatty, so they always like to come in and talk. Good. <laughs> so, I found two resources, and there are... They're a little lengthy to finish it out, but I just think they're so neat because they describe seances from this time period. So I just wanted to share these. So the first one is the International Survivalist Society, which gave a brief description of a typical seance. So here we go. It says, a group of people sit themselves in a dark room. They join hands. After a few minutes or more, one of their number passes into a sleep-like state. This is the trance. It is the spirit entity, may display various automatisms, such as writing or visions or speech. This latter occurs when the medium's own voice is used by a trance personality whose speech habits and voice timbre generally differ quite considerably from those of the medium in the normal waking state. So, basically, when they're in trance, their voice changes. I've even heard sometimes when people go into deep trance, the appearance of their face can even change. Like, they can take on some of the characteristics of the loved one in spirit.
1: That's very trippy to think about.
0: I know. I know. I would love to see someone do trance. I just think that would be – and someone that's good at it and knows it, I would love to see it. Now, the last description is from 1852, and I really wanted to include it because it's actually William Lloyd Garrison describing a seance with the Fox sisters. And if anyone ever reads this description, you're going to know I cut, I had to cut out sections because we would be here for like another 15 minutes. So it was a long description. So I've, I've, I've cut it down a little bit so here we go what was it like to be in a seance with the fox sisters well the circle was composed of six gentlemen and four ladies we sat around in the usual manner hands of each individual upon the table while waiting for some demonstrations from the invisible world we had our right foot padded as if by a human hand and the right leg of our pantaloons strongly pulled by some unseen agency raps were then distinctly heard. The presence of several spirits were indicated during the evening, and satisfactory tests were made. But the most communicative and efficient one purported to be that of Jesse Hutchinson. He then spelled out the following communication by the alphabet. I am most happy, dear friends, to be able to give you such a tangible evidence of my presence. The good time has truly come. The gates of New Jerusalem are open, and the good spirits, made more pure by the change of spheres, are knocking at the door of your souls. Various objects were also placed on the floor and under the table and moved about, plus the name Jesse was written on a sheet of paper placed beneath the table. Another spirit, father to one of the women present, told them, The subject of spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. So that was a sitting with the Fox sisters. I know. I love that. I
1: love little Jesse. I think that. I'm impressed that he used rapping to spell out that message. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And like- what
0: that is such. We have talked about this. That the rapping. We're talking about they had to knock until they stopped. And you're like, okay, that was a B. Knock, 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 C. I mean, That took a lot
1: of time like there's a lot of t's in that sentence like what happens if you miscount? you have to start over again like i don't have the patience for the ouija board can you imagine no 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 <laughs> uh,
0: we we caitlin we we have discussed this we would have probably not done well no. Like, or we would have just jumped to either trance or we would have jumped to automatic writing like yeah. We, we got to skip ahead. Somebody
1: figure out how to hear exactly what they're trying to say or like interpret what they're getting at. Because this is it's been 45 minutes. and You're on the second word. Could we please?
0: <laughs> oh, good thing poor Jesse didn't come to you as a medium. You'd be like, OK,
1: because he would say I am most happy. You'd be like, he's good. He's, he's, good. Happy. he's happy. He's fine. He's in the summerland. We're good. Look at that. Time's up. I'm going home. Bye.
0: <laughs> and you just hear the tapping continue. Be like, I don't hear anything. Do you hear? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't
1: hear, don't hear anything. anything. I don't care if it's on my bed frame. I'll... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thankfully, you are a modern day media. <laughs> I don't even have my own circle. They didn't kick me out anyway. <laughs> she keeps leaving two words in. She can't come play anymore. Oh my goodness. That is funny. <laughs> poor Jesse. No, he I'm glad that he had talk. people who were who were patient and willing to let his poor little hands wrap out the worst version of Morse code I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my, goodness. Oh, my goodness. oh my goodness, he would hate you. Yep. <laughs> A lot of people do. It's fine. <laughs> no
0: they don't that's not true that is not true oh my goodness well he got his message across and now that, that was the thing back then we joke about the rapping and how long it would take but these were like beautifully eloquent messages they were just very long very very long
1: yeah no so, so, somebody find a different way <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that's probably why the talking boards came about not long after this.
1: I guarantee that had something to do with it. I can't sit here for four hours anymore. There's got to be a better way. What if we had the alphabet and we could just get them to point at the alphabet letter they want to point at? Oh, look, we have talking boards. Shortly <laughs> followed by the Ouija board. It's it's fine. We found the solution. It's fingerspelling and it's long, but it's shorter than what we had. It's an improvement.
0: True. True. I like it. I like it. <laughs> now, <laughs> what is interesting to note that um, when William Lloyd Garrison described this, um, what we call a séance with the Fox Sisters, he actually never used the word séance. He referred to it as a sitting. So, so he go. called it a
1: séance without calling it a séance.
0: Basically, basically. Now, by 1853, there were more than thirty. 1000 mediums in the United States alone and spiritualism was quickly spreading throughout Britain and the continent. But what we kind of talked about tonight sadly but not surprisingly you had many charlatans taking advantage trying to make a profit and each time a fraudulent medium was exposed it brought a barrage of skepticism directed towards the movement. Yeah which we're going to look into more later. But by 1853 to have 30,000 mediums and that this is the beginning of the movement. I mean, we've, we remember the Fox sisters are 1848. Yeah. So by a couple of years later, we've got 30,000. That is just going
1: to grow and take off. That's exponentially bigger. Like 30,000 mediums by 1900, you know, give it 50 years. I can absolutely mm-hmm. see it. But yeah, it's five years. Five years later, they went from three to well, four, if you count the Sierra of Poughkeepsie, four that we really talk about to 30,000 like that's a whole stadium full of mediums
0: oh it it really is and seance continued to take off we really don't start seeing the seance fall away until was the 20s the 20s and 30s well it it goes through the 20s and houdini
1: helps take it out which we'll talk about later but yeah it was going through the jazz age and then i think Maybe the Great Depression had an effect on it? I don't know. Yeah. Because it was already not really a thing by the time World War II rolls around. That's true. It
0: does. It just kind of fades out. But they, I just want people to leave knowing these weren't designed to be scary things. It's not like what you see in Hollywood movies. It was just simply a way that people who were dealing with their grief, who were dealing with their loss, it gave them a chance to reach out to their loved ones again. So... That's how I think of a seance now. It's just reaching out to those you love, which is beautiful. And we still do that today. We just don't call it a seance and we don't do it in the dark. No, but But we're we're still still doing the same.
1: I was saying, no, but we do still play light as a feather, stiff as a board at sleepovers. Yeah, we do. Which, in my opinion, counts as a kind of seance. It does. And we still have Ouija boards. I mean, you can still buy those at toy stores
0: target <laughs> <laughs> not sponsored by the way no <laughs> but, but hey. my
1: favorite one is the glow-in-the-dark cardboard one that my mom picked up at walmart <clears throat> when i was a kid
0: oh my goodness i had one when i was little i'm sure people are shocked to learn that <laughs> you had to learn your fear yes i did i just thought it was a cool game until i had a friend come over and scream when she saw it in my closet it was like What's wrong it's just a Ouija board I
1: had no idea no idea that um, there was fear around the Ouija yeah, board I, say, I think the fear is greatly exaggerated but it's also there's it's it's better to have a what is it a ounce of prevention prevents a pound of cure or what have you like if you're play basically if you're playing with the spirit world being cautious is probably a better idea than being me <laughs> 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 i'll walk into places i really shouldn't oh this is the place that you're oh. worried about okay uh, just go on in i'll be sensitive I'm, in particular I'm, but other times i'll just be like it's not that big a deal for me it's fine we can do this no i i
0: can't talk you can take me to a haunted place and unless i'm tuning in or focused i'm like i don't feel anything here and you'll be like um there's like somebody in the corner i'm like really
1: yeah they're, <laughs> they're cranky and i don't know why that's what we have you for you can tell me why they're cranky i'll point out where they are <laughs> You can break it down.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Seances, when we look at it in this light and we look at it with context of what's going on and, a limit, and you know, getting rid of the frauds and the people that took advantage, they, it's just a way to deal with grief Absolutely. is really what they were. And heal. It, they were so healing for so many people. So next time when you think of a seance, hopefully that's what you'll think of and not what Hollywood and horror movies have turned them into. With that, that's the seance. Ta-da! So we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll tune in next time.
1: Until then, thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and appease the podcast gods by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcasts. And while you're there, please hit subscribe so that you know when we release new episodes.
0: Also, we want to hear from you. So let us know what you think about this episode and if there are any spirited topics you want us to explore in future episodes. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook at Calling All Spirits Pod, or you can email us at callingallspiritspod at gmail.com. And I mean if
1: you're feeling lucky, you can try to contact us via the Ouija board. Ooh. <laughs> Until then...